The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Support for this show comes from the Spirituality and Health Annual Holiday Gift Guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. Email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or call 231-933-5660, extension 305. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Hugh Byrne. He's author of The Here and Now Habit, How Mindfulness Can Help You Break Unhealthy Habits Once and for All. An interview with Hugh appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Hugh Byrne, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you, Rabbi. It's a pleasure to talk with you. This is something that I'm very interested in, mindfulness, not habits. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But if you can help me break mine, that would be great, as long as I don't break the habit of practicing mindfulness. That will not be helpful. That's right. So let's begin with your own story, actually. How, how did you come to mindfulness practice? You know, I, I grew up in the Christian tradition, but I was never, it kind of never, never really got hold of me deeply. I was from a, a Catholic Irish family, a large family. And, you know, I tried when I was a kid to connect with God, but um, it kind of never quite happened. And in my late teens and 20s, I became quite political and quite active and quite atheist, really, you could say. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s, I was very doing a lot of activist work and human rights work, that I read a book, actually, by, um, by Alan Watts called The Way of Zen. And it was kind of, I didn't know a lot about it, but it seemed very interesting to me. And I found the more I read it, the more my mind was kind of becoming more open and seeing things in a different way. And I had one of those experiences where a kind of a letting go experience or a mind expanding experience um, that was kind of outside of the everyday realm of my, my, you know, everyday life. And um, it was enough to encourage me to explore more the teachings, the kind of the teachings, the wisdom teachings, mainly from the East. And I beca- began reading more and I began practicing meditation. And it was over a period of a number of years. And it was the, when I first, the, you know, the next kind of big thing for me was doing a, a meditation retreat where I had about nine or 10 days to just get kind of settle into silence. And I recognized how much I enjoyed that, how much it kind of touched into something very, very basic and very meaningful in me. And that's kind of, that's really got me on the road. That was maybe 25 plus years ago. 
And from then on, it's been more, not that it's been plain sailing, but it's been, I've never really doubted that this was a path that I wanted to be on. Well, I'm glad you referenced Alan Watts. I mean, I, A, I love Alan Watts. Uh, and, uh-huh. and B, I, I think that the people, people like him from that, that generation, uh, they're sort of lost in, uh, in the current search. People don't usually quote Alan Watts or even Krishnamurti or any of these, these people that right. were so important to you and, and to me as well. So I'm glad it was Alan Watts who, who turned you on to this. So do, do you practice within a specific lineage? Was there a specific teacher that, that you followed? Yeah, I did. Um, what I, I began really in the Zen uh, tradition, but I didn't really have a teacher in that tradition. I just practiced with a group and I found it very, very helpful. This was for a number of maybe three or four years. But the longer meditation retreat I did and then the subsequent retreats after that were in the insight meditation, sometimes called Vipassana, which really just means seeing clearly. The tradition that comes out of Southern Asia you know, where the Buddhist teachings came, first of all, went south into what is today Sri Lanka and then, you know, what's today Thailand and Burma and Cambodia. And then other teachings went later went north along the Silk Road, ultimately to China and Japan. So where I, the teachings that I practice in, um, the tradition I practice in comes out of the Theravadan tradition of South Asia. And the teachers, I didn't practice a lot with Asian teachers. It was more kind of the generation. There was an intermediate generation of Jack Cornfield, uh, Joseph Goldstein up in Barry, Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Society, Sharon Salzberg, folks that went in the 60s and 70s and studied with, with Asian teachers and then came back to the West in the 70s and started retreat centers, including the two major centers, Insight Meditation in Barry, Massachusetts and Spirit Rock out in California. And I would say my main teacher, teachers have been Christopher Titmus, who's an English teacher, very much an activist, Jack Cornfield, um, Tara Brock, um, who's a colleague of mine here in Washington. Those have been some of my major influences, really. The Western teachers, who most of whom practiced in Asia and really came back and made the teachings very, very accessible to Western audiences. I think that's the great gift of people like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein. Um, um, folks, actually, you know, interestingly enough, many of whom uh, of their background is Jewish, you know, and often kind of jokingly called Jew-boos or Boo-Jews. Um, had very, very significant role in, in kind of bringing the teachings into the West um, and, uh, you know, r- wrote many, many books and, you know, very, very respected teachers um, here today, you know. Also the, sort of shaping it in, or, or I don't know if shaping is the right word, maybe filtering it through Western psychology, a lot Absolutely, of this, and, yeah. and your, your book too has that uh, a psychological bent to it, I think, self-help kind of, and I don't know if that's the term you want to use, but but helping people, in, in this case, break unhealthy habits, to quote the, the title itself. Do you consider right. yourself a Buddhist? I do. I do. I, um, I, I'm very much, um, you know, I don't see it, you know, as an ism so much. I don't see it, you know, so much in a devotional sense 
as more a very pragmatic way of um, freeing ourselves from suffering. I think I see it as very pragmatic, very experiential. And some people are more into the devotional side of it, but I don't find myself pulled so much in that direction. I'm more pulled in the direction of how do we live more freely? How do we find more peace and ease in in our lives? And so I do teach, you know, I teach Buddhist meditation. I teach, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Foundations of Mindfulness. But I also teach secular mindfulness, and I don't find it a contradiction at all. You know, so I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know, the program that John Kabat-Zinn developed, which is very secular. It doesn't talk very much about Buddhism except, except to just rent reference that it came out of that tradition. But it teaches it the, the practice of mindfulness in a more secular way. So I find myself actually quite comfortable in both of those worlds. And and as you say, very much, you know, very influenced by Western psychology, by the findings of neuroscience. And I use those a lot in, in the book, you know, of what's going on in our brains, you know, and how how habits, you know, take or take over, if you like, a part of our brain, you know, a, a, a certain brain processes and all of that. And what I find really interesting is the way, way of other ways in which these um, neuroscience in many ways, uh, kind of confirm some of the ancient wisdom teachings from Buddhism and other traditions. So let's talk a second about how habits sort of capture the mind and, and, and I guess the will. How do you understand that? I mean, you can define habits for us and then you know, tell us how, how they work. Yeah, I mean, anything that gets repeated often enough under consistent conditions. I mean, normally it need to be, you know, sometimes something you do, like you get in the car and after, you know, the 50th time or however many times it might be, you put your seatbelt on. At first, it's a very intentional action, you know, but after a while, the brain, you know, if you kind of personify the brain, kind of give it as kind of a person, a quality of a person, the brain kind of says, oh, Every time I get in, you know, the person gets in the car, this happens. So I don't need to think that through every time. It can just become a natural thing after a certain amount of times. And that may vary from person to person and habit to habit. But after a while, it becomes habitual. And then you no longer need to think about it. It, it goes into the faster, a faster moving brain process. Um, the great writer and um, psychologist um, Daniel Kahneman, uh, if you've read his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, about kind of the, the way the brain works and the way our brains can get us into trouble. He talks about it as he calls it system one that kind of fast acting, more instinctual brain process and system two being the more slower, more intentional, more rational, more thought through process. And so what happens when something becomes habitual, even if we have the intention to change that habit, it's quite difficult to do. As you, as we all know, probably from new year's resolutions that, um, that when the slower action, acting brain processes come up against these fast acting, more instinctual processes, the instinctual ones tend to win out. And that's why habits can be so uh, sticky, so tenacious, so hard to change. 
And so that's where the kind of the mindfulness comes in and the insight, I think, of my book. I don't, I'm not the only one who said this, but I think, you know, I'm saying it in a kind of an, a large way of kind of linking habit change to the, the practice of mindfulness, that this really is a key. And I'm happy to kind of talk about that. Um, Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, so I do want to talk about that. I want to I want to just use what you just said a moment ago. Is it do you think mindfulness in effect shifts us from system 1 to system 2 fast thinking to slow thinking so we get a handle on what Yeah, yeah is that how it works? So you want to yeah, go into that, that more? Yeah, that is exactly how I that I I understand it working that if we can bring processes that have become automatic and unconscious. So if you think of it as the radar screen, it's operating underneath the radar or off the radar. And we're bringing it back in onto the radar so we can see that blip. We can see that, oh, you know, if it's a habit of like late in the evening, um, going to the to the freezer for for ice cream, and after a while that becomes you know maybe it's triggered by feeling anxious or lonely or feeling like we deserve a treat at the end of the day. After a while, it becomes automatic, and in order to change that habit, it's really important to bring it into awareness to know okay. This is when it tends to happen. These are the conditions it happens under. The more we can do that, then we're bringing it onto the radar screen, as it were. And then we can see, okay, when I feel that, that urge, that, you know, that tightness in my stomach that sends the message to the brain, oh, I need some ice cream now, I want some ice cream now, then, then instead of going straight to the freezer, you can actually say, okay, there is an alternative. I could actually stay with this feeling rather than choosing to go to the to the freezer and getting ice cream. Okay, and now I know why. Yeah. <laughs> now I know why it go doesn't ahead. work for me. If my choice is ice cream <laughs> or sitting and breathing. No, no, I'm going Exactly, to the ice cream. exactly. So it, it so it's often it's I'm not saying it's going to be easy to change. I'm not saying it's just like seeing it automatically you change because quite often we have to be with an experience that is not so easy, but, but then at least we can make a choice. We can say, now, if over a period of six months I'm putting on 10 or 12 pound by doing this in this unconscious way, is it worth it to me to put up with some discomfort? You could say the same thing about smoking, you know, of how you know, we all know how harmful that is. You're going to have to put up with some discomfort, some feeling of, of kind of cold turkey of like, oh, I've, I've got to feel this, this like got to have it, got to have it. But I can actually, if I'm aware of it, I can stay with those feelings rather than acting out the habit. And over time, I can change unhealthy habits. That's, and so mindfulness in that way is, is the key. It brings what's unconscious into consciousness. It makes what's 
invisible visible and then we then we're in a place where we can make a change so is there an assumption in what we're what you're talking about i mean two things come to mind one is yeah who is the you that's making the shift you know like if you're talking about mindfulness and you say yeah. we're you know i'm training the mind yeah. what's the i that's doing that and how does that play into the notion of free will and and you've got two minutes <laughs> yeah well i mean the the I think what we're we're connecting with in those situations is kind of our deepest intentions. I mean, who a, a deeper sense of who we are, um, which is may well be different from the I that is kind of going in the instinctual direction, going in the direction of feeling. Okay, I need this now. I've got to have it now. That that. You know, I mean, it, it's the same person that is feeling that, but we're we're pulling ourselves out of that that kind of the 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 eye that's connecting with that's craving something that's in a kind of tunnel vision isn't able to connect with the larger picture. Of what's the be What is best for me? You know, yeah. for this for this person, this being, and the more I can bring it back to. What do I really want? What do I most deeply care about? Is it more ice cream? Is it to smoke that cigarette? Is it to take this drug? Or is it to, to, um, to live in a healthy way? Is it to be more free of craving and compulsion and more in a position to choose? So it's that sense of that deeper sense of who we are, what we care about, what we most value, that I think that, that mindfulness is connecting us with. So in Judaism, the, the terms we use that, that speak to this, uh, the Hebrew is mochin de katnut and mochin de godlut. Mochin de katnut means narrow mind and mochin de godlut means spacious mind. And when you're in narrow mind, that's where the habits, I mean, that's why you're in narrow mind. It's, it's sort of driven by those habits. And then through one meditation system or another, you can shift into spacious mind and then observe the, the desire to smoke or the desire to eat the ice cream and not be motivated to actually, or at least have the freedom to choose not to do it. I think those are, I mean, I think that's a wonderful way of seeing it because I think it really gels with the, the science. The science, the neuroscience really points to the way in which when we're caught up in a very, um, you know, a, a kind of a, a fight or flight based response, we go into a kind of tunnel vision. You know, we're, we're just focused, like you think the obvious example would be an addict craving the drug. You know, the addict at that stage, if it's really a very strongly developed addiction, is not able to look back and see, oh, is this really good for my life? Is it helpful to me? There's a knowing probably that it isn't helpful, but that narrow, got to have this, got, you know, I'll die without it, is so strong at that moment. So how do we move out of that narrow kind of tunnel vision into that more spacious mind? And I think mindfulness is really the, a, a, a wonderful practice for doing that. Maybe it's not, it's not the only practice. We could maybe do, you know, pray, or do, you know, kind of if we could take a walk in the woods, but some way in which we connect with a larger sense of ourselves, what, what you termed the, the spacious mind. And I think that's what mindfulness helps us to do.
And you can learn how to do it, uh, really, by, by reading Hugh's book, The Here and Now Habit. So uh, I'm going to have to leave it there, though I have a million more questions and would love to talk with you longer. We don't have any longer. My guest today was Hugh Byrne. He's author of The Here and Now Habit, How Mindfulness Can Help You Break Unhealthy Habits Once and For All. An interview with Hugh appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Hugh Byrne, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. It was a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for talking with us. Support for this show comes from Spirituality and Health's annual holiday gift guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue and on the uh, website featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. You can email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or you can call her at 231-933-5660, extension 305. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.